My name is Tokumba Arebui, and this is No Little Plans, a podcast about the UN Sustainable Development Goals in Canada. For this episode, we're looking into goal number 16, peace, justice, and strong institutions. The criminal justice system is made up of a number of intersecting government agencies, services, and institutions that administer justice in Canada. Everything from the courts, jails, prisons, to law enforcement, or the police. But how the system treats you and how you interact with it, that often depends on who and where you are in Canada. According to data reporting from CBC, Inuit are dying during interactions with police at a significantly higher rate in Nunavut and Nunavik. By a number of measures, the police pose a significant danger for Inuit living in their own territory. And a number of elected officials and Inuit leaders have been calling for a full systematic review of policing in Nunavut. This initiative has been pursued by the Territory's Legal Services Board, In today's episode, we're looking into policing and access to justice in Canada's eastern Arctic. What exactly does safety and security look like for Inuit? And how do communities feel justice is being served? Last year, the world faced a reckoning with police violence. And around the same time in Canada's north, this happened. Tonight... A Nunavut RCMP officer is under investigation. The video shows an RCMP officer running down an Anuk man with the door of his truck. The video was captured in Kenite. And has residents wondering who exactly is policing the police. The video takes place in Kingite, a.k.a. Cape Dorset. It begins with a man walking on the side of the road. An RCMP truck drives up from behind. The officer opens the driver's side door and in one motion knocks the man to the ground. All of this happens in a span of a few seconds. According to the Nunatsiak News, this was the sixth incident of police violence to undergo external investigation in 2020. Just a few months earlier, in Kingite, the RCMP had shot and killed Anuk artist Atachi Ashuna. So while BLM demonstrations took place around the world... Inuit faced a similar situation within their own community. Over 200 people marched in downtown Iqaluit in support of the social movement and to demonstrate against police brutality. The person you heard speaking truth to power and leading the call and response, that's Jukipa Kutiak. When I think of what does it mean to be Inuk from Nunavut, for me, my home is Inuit Nunat, which is Inuit territories and homelands on an international basis. Last year, the Nunavut Black History Society invited her to speak at the BLM demonstration, but Jukipa was hesitant. She didn't want to take space away from a day dedicated to Black lives. I find myself seeing the need to give voice to things that aren't spoken about. And I've experienced someone in my family having been lost to police brutality and negligence. However, if that person wasn't even a family member, I would hear about it. I would hear my community speak about it. And that would still impact me. 
Thinking back to the protest, Jukipa reflected on the realities of police brutality in her community and how it has affected her own family. The sadness and confusion around how her family member died, that it happened in police custody, that it was labeled a suicide, this was all deeply traumatizing. Having a family member who had passed in incarceration and being told that it was self-done, basically, felt like a blatant lie. Knowing that that person had a spark for life and joy for life and having a single family member impacted directly by police negligence, police brutality, causes increased distrust on so many levels. And Jukipa explained how these feelings were shared beyond her immediate family. When it comes to family, especially in various Indigenous contexts that includes large communities, it's never limiting. And in Inuit culture, that's how important community is. Like People carry so many roles that it's going to have a huge rippling effect across generations of families. One instance can impact an entire community. Not even our entire community, but our entire territory. The reach of this goes beyond one person. Seeing what the system says it does, protect, versus how her community actually experiences policing, that disconnect is internalized by many young people like Jukipa. As a younger person, I never necessarily felt safe around police. I used to think like maybe that's a me being shy thing, but I realized like it's a me being um, self-protective because I've recognized that they haven't been kind to people that look like me, people that are part of my community. And so seeing a video shared on social media, like what happened in Kingite, that can trigger memories of decades worth of trauma for Inuit communities. The fact that that had happened in Kingite, it just continued to add weight to the already existing, non-existent relationship of trust between Inuit and RCMP. It puts salt on an already existing large gash. And that would influence any ongoing or existing opportunities to build a better, quote-unquote, reconciled relationship. Based on statistics alone, Jukipa's distrust of police is well-founded. To learn more about how deadly interactions can be for Inuit, we reached out to journalist Thomas Rohner, who reports on these issues for CBC. Thomas is an investigative journalist based in Iqaluit. He's been following criminal justice in the Arctic for a number of years. I remember the first time that I walked into a courtroom, I immediately noticed that there was only one Enoch in the courtroom, and it was the person who was accused of a crime. So right away, I observed a hugely disproportionate representation among who is in what roles. The deeper you scratch beneath the surface, the more entrenched those biases seem. For example, policing in the territories provided by the RCMP, which is, of course, a, a federal organization, um, they are always underrepresented by Inuit, but then that also extends into the court system and the lawyers and the judges, and that extends to the prison system, where there's, there's, there's just very few Inuit involved in the administration of justice. 
In addition to the underrepresentation of Inuit injustice, Thomas picked up on another aspect of criminal justice in the North that seemed disproportionate. After living here for a couple of years, it seemed apparent to me that you'd hear about police-related deaths at a rate that seemed disproportionate to the population. And so I tried to look into that. I contacted the coroner offices for all three territories. And then as a point of reference, I also collected data from Ontario, the most populous province or jurisdiction in Canada. And sure enough, once I adjusted for population size, overall in the 21 years of data that we looked at, Nunavut's rate of police-related deaths was more than nine times higher than Ontario's. In just the last decade, though, that number was more than 14 times higher. When Thomas collected data from the coroners, he was looking into all the deaths that took place since 1999, deaths that took place during, after, or in police custody, the police-related deaths. This includes all cases where police were on the scene, but may not have been, quote, directly responsible. In order to make sense of these numbers and compare it to what he had heard anecdotally, Thomas consulted a number of criminologist statisticians to find out what they made of it. One of the best-known statisticians and, and criminologists in Canada told me that there's, there's definitely a trend in Nunavut. That trend is especially high in the last 10 years. And, you know, the statistician being the conservative, number-oriented kind of person that he is didn't want to interpret the trend, all that he can do is identify the trend. And all that he said was, this is obviously worth looking into. We don't know why that trend exists. We don't know if it's something that has happened in the past 10 years that has changed the relationship between policing services and the communities. But right. that's the value of doing stat stories. You have a starting point of factual basis. Okay, we, we have these numbers, now let's try to understand them. When someone dies in police custody, it triggers a coroner's inquest. But the coroner isn't looking for who's at fault. Instead, they look into the circumstances surrounding the death and use any findings to make recommendations to improve public safety and prevent similar events in the future. As Thomas's reporting shows, when it comes to Nunavut, quote, Inuit are dying during interactions with police at a rate significantly higher than in Yukon, Northwest Territories, and Ontario. And when you consider Nunavik, the Inuit homeland in the north of Quebec, as a region it's seen more police-related deaths in the last two decades than any of Canada's three territories. So what's behind this? How come the interactions with police in Nunavut and Nunavik are more deadly than other regions? And what do Inuit leaders think is going on? When I've asked leaders up here that question, the answers they've given me first usually point to the historical relationship between police and Inuit. Mm. So the region that I'm in is called the Kikiktani. That's the Baffin Island region. And there's the Kikiktani Inuit Association which spearheaded the Kikiktani Truth Commission. And according to that commission, the real push for colonization occurred about the mid-1900s. And that was done largely through the RCMP. The RCMP, in a lot of ways, became the vanguard of the colonial machinery directed by Ottawa. I remember interviewing the president of Nunavut Tungavik Inc., 
and the elected leader of that large organization was telling me when she was a kid growing up, when she would see police cars, it didn't inspire a sense of safety. It was the opposite, where memories were triggered of how police treated her family members. And there's so much trauma, both lived and remembered, and then intergenerational. That's usually the first thing that people point to, to try to help explain how things have gotten the way that they've gotten to. So when Thomas asked the president of Nunavut Tungavik Inc., that's the Inuit government that administers land claim agreements, she brought it back to the region's recent colonial history and the historical role of the RCMP. From the RCMP's perspective, in the communities especially, officers are never off duty. If they're sleeping, they're on call. Uh, there's there's mm-hmm. very little to zero backup. Uh, there was, there was one coroner's inquest that I covered back in 2014 up island in a community called Iglulik. A man had died in police cells, and that was what the inquest was about. And the inquest heard that when the two officers who were at the detachment at the time of the man's death, they're the ones who sealed and then stayed at the scene to preserve the scene, even though they were the ones who were then being investigated. And that would not fly. That, that is not acceptable practice around maintaining evidence anywhere in the thinking world. It represents a major conflict. It does. And, and it's the kind of logistical thing that comes up on a regular basis that leaves the police saying, well, Nunavut's a special case, and people in Nunavut being like, don't we deserve the same as everyone else? As Thomas explained, it comes down to two sides— Police saying, well, the North is unique and challenging, and the public demanding better. In response to recent public scrutiny, the RCMP launched a body cam project in Iqaluit. It started in November and aimed to get all six officers on shift set up with body-worn cameras. This is something Thomas has been following very closely. The promise is big, rebuild public confidence. But reporting shows that there are a lot of unanswered questions. Who will gain access to the video? How will it be stored? And what difference does it make if officers are able to turn the cameras on and off? I I do think it's also worth mentioning that the policing model is something that is coming under greater and greater scrutiny. It's not about bad apples in the police force. It's about a police force being structured in a way that is not responsive or responsible to the communities it's policing. And even though public pressure is forcing a conversation about policing, Doing this kind of reporting, keeping track of the police, that remains a challenge for journalists like Thomas. The RCMP as an organization are notoriously terrible for getting information and data out of. I've filed numerous ATIP requests, access to information requests on them, and uh, any journalist I think in Canada who's done that will tell you the same sort of thing. I'll get a boilerplate letter saying they have no idea when they'll be able to respond to me by which is not in keeping with the legislation and is not helpful. How is police transparency, the RCMP's transparency, graded internationally? Not well. The trend in the Western world that is seen towards greater accountability is to have civilian involvement in investigations on police. And that's exactly what the RCMP do not have and have resisted having every decade of the last century. 
In Nunavut, the model is set up so that in the case of an in-custody death, the RCMP is required to contract out the investigation to an external force, like the Ottawa or Calgary police services. Remember Justice for Kingite? The Ottawa Police Service recommended no criminal charges for the RCMP officer who shot and killed Atachi Ashuna. And when it came to the officer who used his truck to arrest a pedestrian, yeah, they found that arrest to be lawful. So what's happening is that the current mechanism is one where police investigate police. This system falls short of the UN Special Rapporteur Mr. Philip Alston's 2010 study on police oversight mechanisms. The study found that one crucial factor that contributes to police impunity is the lack of effective, dedicated, external civilian oversight. Since the news this summer, policymakers in Nunavut have been discussing potential legislation that might make civilian oversight a possibility. When I asked Thomas about the impact of his data reporting, he reminded us how far back these trends go. There have been people aware of these kinds of trends and this kind of violence for decades, lifetimes. Mm -hmm. So the impact of my reporting remains to be seen, I guess. It, it did provoke a lot of reactions from local politicians and leaders and organizations, you know, making statements about how shocking and unacceptable what this data says is. But in terms of having any deeper impact, uh, I mean, yeah, these are uh, huge issues. We did reach out to both police organizations for comment. We didn't hear back from the Nunavik Police Service, and the RCMP said they couldn't respond in time for our deadline. Since we recorded our interviews, the RCMP released a statement about the second run of a program to get more Inuit into basic training, and that they've signed a working agreement with Pauktutit, the organization that represents Inuit women. This marks a year since the release of a damning report by the organization about how policing requires a fundamental shift to better serve Inuit communities. As for Nunavik, in February, according to the Nunatsiak News, the police chief discussed how they're hiring Inuit facilitators to help police resolve crisis situations. Death in police custody violates the most basic human right to life— and when it comes to who keeps tabs on the police, yes, there are formal oversight bodies, but there's also the kind of journalism Thomas is doing. Speaking with him reminds us how important access to data is for journalists, and they're an essential part of how we keep track of Canada's commitment to the SDGs. We wanted to learn more about how policing works in the North. We reached out to Curtis Mesher, a law student, at his home in Kujwak, Nunavik. Every time I've ever gone to the courthouse here in Kujwak, they always think I'm an accused because at one point I was working for a law firm that had cases active in Kujwak in this community. And I show up to read the docket to, you know, get information like any other sort of uh, lawyer to be law student was doing immediately just because of who I was. Clearly, I could be nothing other than a criminal or an accused. I think there is always going to be a certain expectation of who we should be arresting, who we should be policing versus who we shouldn't be. Curtis is a Jane Glasgow Policy Fellow at the Gordon Foundation, where he's researching criminal justice reform and police oversight in the North. He's taken a special interest in the interactions between police and Northern communities. 
for years, it seems like it was a systemic action that was so, so present, so omnipresent that it was never really even acknowledged because it's kind of like we were asking the fish to notice the water. Police just wouldn't even realize that they were swimming in these currents of colonial repression up until very recently. When we look at policing in the Arctic, who exactly are the police? In Inuit Nunangat, policing is the responsibility of the RCMP. Except for in Nunavik, the part of northern Quebec where Curtis lives. Since 1996, Nunavik has been served by the Katavik Regional Police Force, or the KRPF. But Curtis is quick to point out an important distinction when it comes to policing in this context. It's maybe even more dire issue because of the fact that often the police officers are coming from entirely outside the community, not only from a different town over, but from hundreds of kilometers, sometimes thousands of kilometers away. And suddenly they're dropped into a whole new world with people speaking a whole different language. And often when that is the case in the North, it's very in your face to consider that the colonial project is ongoing. In a 2020 research report submitted to Public Safety Canada, the Katavik Regional Police Force was found to have difficulty hiring Indigenous officers. They had to recruit mostly French-speaking staff from southern Quebec. According to the police chief, quoted in the Viennes Commission, quote, almost the entire staff has to be replaced every 12 months. I asked Curtis how he feels his community currently views the police. It's a very interesting question, when it comes to Nunavik in particular, because the uh, Katavik Regional Police Force is mm. uh, technically, by some metrics, an indigenous police force in that they work for government bodies, regional bodies that are Inuit run or have considerable Inuit say in them. But when you look at their organization on paper. Nearly every police officer is from the South. Mm. They're quite literally outsiders in most senses of the term, be it language, culture, understanding of the situation of living in the region. Right. In all these different senses, it's uh, more so outsiders coming to your community, instilling perhaps values that are different than your communities. There's maybe some hostilities in the fact that when it comes to policing Inuit communities, whether it's Nunavut or Nunavik, often it's people not from the community regulating the community's interactions, you know, sometimes to a deadly degree. That's a big point of contention. So technically in Nunavik, the police is indigenous run. But Curtis shows us how that's not 100% true when you look at the actual composition of the force and how it interacts with the local community. I believe that Having the, the common understanding of language, of knowing exactly where each other is coming from when uh, people are interacting with each other to be very, very important. When you consider the the nature of policing and the sorts of interactions that they are called upon day to day with people, be it a domestic dispute, be it some sort of disagreement that you might come across on the street in a small town, Suddenly, you'll have someone with a different manner of speech, a different understanding of what certain questions and answers mean, right. and just a different way of viewing the 
impact of the legal system. When Curtis brings up language, that's an example of how communities can be considered underserved. Without a common language and cultural understanding, how does law enforcement communicate or protect communities they're supposed to represent? As early as 1991, the Aboriginal Justice Inquiry found that, quote, Aboriginal people experience both under- and over-policing in Canada. Over-policing is often characterized by the kinds of excessive force or over-representation of Indigenous people in statistics, like we've seen so far in this episode. Whereas under-policing can refer to how well-served Northern communities are by those services, whether they have access to police services 24 hours, 7 days a week, whether those services need to be flown into a community, how long response times are, or whether police are only visible when it comes time to make an arrest. I wanted to learn more about what over-policing and under-policing means to Curtis. Under-policing, over-policing is kind of a, a little seesaw in the North where frequently it seems like it's the case where police will be much more focused on investigating or dealing with uh, incidents involving Inuit, whereas they will let some things slide, even egregious, obvious actions, if it is a Southerner doing it, or especially a white Southerner. So a noise complaint involving Inuit arguing versus noise complaints involving uh, white people arguing ends up uh, a situation of over-policing, under-policing that the community is aware of. Under-policing is still very much the reality to the point where um, I might not actually speak to the police first. If I want to solve an issue, I would maybe speak with elders in my family, some of my uncles or my grandmother or my cousins to help find something if it was stolen hmm. uh, or help me deal with someone and like kind of find a, a, a good solution between me and some sort of actor before I would ever kind of think to involve the police, not because of my dislike of them in general, but also just from my pragmatic understanding that often they're not really able to help many people with many things. And I know it's been the case in the past where police seemed very unwilling to address domestic assaults, uh, things of this nature, abuses of those nature, whereas... Um, you know, family is able to handle some things a lot easier when you're coming from the same sort of community as someone when you know people your entire life. So under-policing is definitely a reality for me and my experience, at least. Speaking directly to a listener in, in the South, what do you hope people in the South will learn from listening to you and this podcast? What would be your top takeaways? So it's important to understand that just because it's something you might not see a or hear about every day, that is not something that doesn't exist. You know, this is a very present issue for a lot of people. Perhaps only through greater understanding will will these kind of things be looked at, scrutinized, or reformed. Because ultimately, when we're communities of just several thousand people total across, you know, many different communities, we don't have a, much of a voice about important issues. If anyone is listening and has thoughts on what could be done to work towards better policies or to hold politicians and uh, different commissioners' feet to the fire when these things come up, it is good to 
keep rural Canadians, keep indigenous Canadians, keep northerners in your thoughts and have that be a part of the discussion. Like Curtis said, when it comes to solving problems, sometimes it just makes more sense to go to a family member rather than an officer. But this issue of a dominant European culture not accommodating indigenous values, it extends beyond policing. It's an aspect of the system at large. We wanted to learn more about how a cultural divide can be damaging, this time from someone with experience working squarely within the system. For this, we reached out to Joseph Murdoch Flowers. My name is Joseph Murdoch Flowers. I am a lawyer at Legal Aid in Iqaluit, Nunavut. Before coming to Legal Aid, Joseph worked as a lawyer for the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Commission. He also served as Justice of the Peace in Iqaluit until 2020. In that role, he presided over a case where a woman was being charged for bail violation after calling the police about domestic violence. As a judge, Joseph can't comment on former rulings, but in his decision, Joseph wrote the following. All who administer justice in Nunavut must be aware that our uniforms cloak us in that history, whether they are suits in a courtroom or yellow stripes on police uniforms. Our actions can work towards reconciliation or against it. To advance the work of reconciliation, we must consider the complex and ongoing relationship between law enforcement, courts, and indigenous peoples in this country and in this territory. So my current role is as a civil lawyer at Legal Aid, and so I deal with issues around human rights, discrimination. Anyone who has an issue that is not criminal and not family, and they think a lawyer might be able to help them, they come to us. Joseph told us that much of his work involves identifying the least bad option out of bad options. In speaking with Joseph, you clue in pretty quickly that he takes listening very seriously. It's not surprising given his day job. It's, it's a strange thing. It's a baffling thing when you're not familiar with the criminal justice system. To enter into it and to engage with it is it's a disorienting uh, situation. I imagine it's that way for many people. But I think that when you layer on top of that um, uh, cultural differences that exist between Inuit and the, uh, those who wrote the criminal code, the difference between Inuit societal values and criminal code societal values can be uh, a challenge. In the conversations that we've been having for this episode, these values have come up again and again and again. In your perspective, what do traditional cultural values or Inuit IQ mean to you? I find it hard to really talk about Inuit IQ. For example, I don't speak Inuktitut. Um, I was raised by two Inuit parents. I was raised in a way that was not necessarily connected to a lot of uh, Inuit traditions and culture. There were elements of it that were a part of my life, of course, and are a part of my life. Uh, but the effects of colonization, the cultural dislocation that flows from that is something that I experience. Because of that, I find it hard to identify within myself where I draw from Inuit and just having a, an Inuit perspective on the world. You know, that being said, uh, one example that comes to mind is the application of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And the Charter guarantees 
anyone charged with an offence the right to remain silent and not to uh, speak to the police. Um, And that's that's a right that's guaranteed to anyone who's charged with an offence anywhere in Canada. Mm -hmm. For many Inuit, it's uh, counterproductive to take that route because bottling it up inside and holding on to their own knowledge of their own offending behaviour is unhealthy. And an important part of healing and moving on uh, in a healthy way is admitting to a mistake and uh, seeking forgiveness. And that would mean they tell their side of the story. And that that difference in cultural values can be uh, exploited, um, exploited for the purposes of a prosecution, I, I should clarify. What Joseph is saying about the right to remain silent is really important. And it's not the first time that this has been brought to the attention of the justice community. If we go back to the Aboriginal Justice Inquiry from 1991, they talk about how in order to respect cultural and linguistic differences, police in Australia have judicially mandated guidelines to make it absolutely clear that the right to remain silent is available. But this is just one example of how judicial systems can be aligned to better serve Indigenous peoples. Back to Joseph. Where we go wrong is where we lose sight of the fact that we live in partnership. If we go back to the idea of having this partnership, which I believe has always been there, and we go back to uh, mutual respect, then I think that it allows for flourishing of Indigenous law in the country. And the way I see it now is not always, but most of the time, there's an understanding that it is the colonial law that prevails and it is only that that matters. And any indigenous way of dealing with any sort of conflict is marginalized and not seen as uh, uh, valuable or meaningful. But it is. It is meaningful and valuable, especially to Indigenous people. And so it's important, I, I believe, to look at how these institutions can uh, adjust their practices to account for who they're serving. As Joseph explained, partnership and respect are required for good faith reconciliation. But for people like Joseph who speak up from inside the system to hold it accountable— this can also take a toll. It's difficult to um, have to justify the value of your perspective and of your culture. For many, it's constant to feel that, and um, that's difficult. You know, because I'm because I pass as white. It means that people say certain things thinking that it's a safe place to be racist because <laughs> they're around other white people. So I get to hear some things, I, I suppose, that perhaps wouldn't be heard in other places. But uh, what I have observed in the, in the justice system is that things often end up in the justice system because people are not well. Inuit Taparit Kanatomi has, in its suicide prevention strategy, has outlined some of the I think they call it the social determinants of health. Right. If we put more resources into supporting people uh, as members of their communities, then I think that our communities would be healthier. The social determinants of health. These are factors that need to be in place for someone to live a healthy and fulfilling life. 
For example, we can't address food security without building economic stability. You can't address addictions or suicide without supporting mental health. And you can't address equity in the justice system without looking at the bigger picture. I asked Joseph one last little question. What does justice mean to him? That's, that's, a, that's another deep question. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's a big one. Um, um, Brian Stevenson, who's a lawyer in Alabama, uh, and he works with the Equal Justice Initiative, and he works with a lot of uh, people on death row and, and, and marginalized, economically or racially marginalized mm. uh, clients. He, he, he has said that the, the opposite of poverty is not wealth. The opposite of poverty is justice. And for me, justice is about a community of people who feel like they belong in their community. If people genuinely feel like they are safe, they are loved, they belong, then things would be a lot better. SDG 16 is a big goal. But when it comes to the communities indigenous to the North and how the Canadian Criminal Code serves them, we need to focus on two central pillars, accountability and inclusivity. Our guests today remind us how lawyers, legal students, journalists, and community members make up an essential part of what we can consider the criminal justice system. But we need to empower the people in the system and seek justice for those victimized by it. And then we need to hold ourselves accountable to what is actually being said. If we are to provide equal access to justice in Canada by 2030, we need to address the deadly disconnect between Indigenous communities and law enforcement. And that means redefining how we see justice in the first place. Thank you to Jakipa Kutiak for giving us permission to use audio from a video captured last year at the BLM protest in Iqaluit. For the APTN and CBC News coverage of what happened in Kingite, we've included links in the show notes. And if you want to learn more about this topic, we'll include a list of organizations and resources that we mentioned in the show. My name is Tokumbari Bui, and this has been No Little Plans, a podcast from the Community Foundations of Canada. This show is produced by Ellen Payne-Smith. Our associate producer is Sabrina Brathwaite. Katie Jensen is our executive producer. Our music is by Elcon. This show is a project of Strategic Content Labs. If you want to learn more about the SDGs, go to alliance2030.ca. It's a website created by Community Foundations of Canada to track SDG efforts by communities across Canada.